Now, in moments of crisis and disaster, the collective becomes critical. Mutual aid is a thing. We, we see this repeatedly, floods, fire. And of course, through the height of the pandemic, we rely on each other. But out of crisis, this, this notion of mutual aid is also, is also gaining momentum. And it redresses a, a range of issues from, from housing to, to food, many, many more uh, around the world. And, and we wonder on this program, where does design and architecture fit into this movement? Uh, handily, there is a book that addresses precisely this theme. Uh, it's called Design and Solidarity. Uh, authors are artist Marissa Moran-John and architect Rafi Seagal, and they they discuss the, the, the transformative potential of, of mutualism within the realm of design with leading thinkers and practitioners. Uh, Marissa is, is, is no stranger to this academic territory, having taught at Columbia University, Massachusetts International Institute of Technology, and, and now Parsons the New School, where she's director of integrated design. And she joins us from New York. Marissa, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. In this book, a, a tremendous range of examples that we will pick through showing this this notion, the role that, that design and architecture can play in, in these two critical ideas, solidarity and mutualism. But before we sort of pick through that, those two words, solidarity, mutualism, just explain those ideas for us. You are absolutely right in saying that you know, there has been a resurgence of mutualistic initiatives during the pandemic, and this is wonderful to see. And uh, we should also remember that this is not the first time, you know, mutualism always effloresces and flourishes dur during times of crisis. And, you know, mutualism is people coming to together to share soup, care, hmm. tools, and things like this. You know, a question that that Rafi and I raise in our practice and through this work is how can we ensure that these values endure? Because, you know, people are forming, getting together to share these resources, not, not only sharing immediate need-to-know information and need-to-know services, goods, and resources, but they are forming networks, social networks. And in the long term, you know, they're building neural pathways to be able to come together and build this into how they operate as individuals and communities, which is an essential part of not only our social fabric, of course, but ways to combat and redress and overcome systemic inequity. Mm -hmm. This question of solidarity, you know, mutualism, solidarity, solidarity we see as people coming together despite difference. Um, so there's a number of initiatives, for example, in which allyship, which suggests that people are coming together on the basis of shared values and despite differences, is another key thing that we need to remember. And, you know, the role of art, architecture and design play critical roles here in, um, you know, inspiring uh, these initiatives to take place from the onset but also ensuring that these ideas proliferate and become anchored in the long term. You also say that, that architecture and design, without that sense of, of contact to, to a community, to a mutual need, are, are hollow exercises, that they need to be informed by this sense of, of, of human need and possibility. Yeah, you know, I think that people, 
Um, we've looked at so many examples internationally and across the world. In the U.S., we have a number of examples of people who are coming together. And, you know, the co-design process is is one that is a, is a process that people learn. And it's an iterative process that builds over time through people coming together and co-designing and making decisions together. People are building trusts and can deepen these relationships. And this is an essential way that we can strengthen the social contract and the built environment. Are the disciplines of design and architecture, I mean, I I would suspect have not always been ready for that kind of a cooperative relationship. But there is a moment now in the understanding of the practice of architecture and design that it needs to incorporate a sense of the social. Is is this sort of a, um, a good moment for that to flourish? Uh, it's an, an important and wonderful moment for design and architecture to really think about opportunities for strengthening and building and deepening equity. And there are also historical precedents that we can turn to so that we're not reinventing the wheel and to also deepen our understanding and inspiring how we go about doing this. You know, examples that inspire uh, Rafi and I's collaborative work in art and architecture respectively, include in the 1930s, after the Great Depression, artists, architects, and designers are coming together to rebuild the social fabric in the wake of the Great Depression. Mm. And um, and this is a movement led by second-generation immigrants who are really um, identify as Americans and um, and committed to these um, values of democracy and so forth. You know, this also happens, we see this resurgence happening in 1968 and around this time period when there are movements ha- happening all around the world and uh, artists and designers and architects are really thinking about how to work uh, with other disciplines to further values that they believe in. And we believe that in this moment of advanced economic precarity or advanced capitalism, for example, we believe it's um, this is a moment that we're seeing now and a, and a tremendous opportunity for artists, designers, and architects to come together and further the uh, values that they believe in. Because the, the particular crisis that, that mutualism is is stepping into is, is one of... It's one of basic structures, it's one of, of infrastructure, is one of economic systems. These are huge things with which people can no longer place faith and there's there's a rule then a role then for the for the collective in, in, in filling those gaps and needs. Yes, exactly. And you know, the contributors, you know, so this book that Rafi and I authored, we are turning to practitioners who are social entrepreneurs, social movement leaders. Um, design anthropologists and activists and so forth, um, seeking to strengthen and understand and and, uh, deepen and broaden our own perspectives. And, um, you know, mutualism is often responding first in a need of crisis to the most immediate things that people need, food, housing precarity, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think this is, um, there's a lot that we can learn from, and there's a lot in ways in which we can deepen things for the long term and fundamentally understand how it is to restructure, how it is to influence policy and so forth to ensure, again, that these ideas persevere. So take, for example, housing. 
this is a moment in the United States where we are looking at a care crisis. There are uh, a vast number, there's uh, of un, uh, unprecedented numbers of individuals who are retiring. Um, and there are not enough caregivers to meet the daily needs of those who need to get out of bed to feed themselves, to take a bath and so forth. At the same time, we're seeing a housing crisis. One of uh, the projects that Rafi and I are, have been working on for a number of years and are continuing is looking at how do we solve this twin crisis of housing and care. And the roots of it really begin in the 1950s when the single family nuclear home you know, the heteronormative, uh, you know, mother, wife, husband, 2.5 children, these single family homes were being built in suburbia and um, destroying some of the urban fabric in which uh, that enabled families to collectivize and share things like housing, care and food and so forth. So how do we fundamentally, how do we take this opportunity to fundamentally restructure how we think about housing and care and how can design help not only come up with new solutions but inspire new ways and, and values of how we might think about care for the young the elderly and the disabled well, tell us more about that project it's called care house with your co-author rafi seagull how does that work it's quite a unique concept so Carehouse came about as a kind of a culmination, perhaps, of my 12 years of collaborating with the National Domestic Workers Alliance, in which I've collaborated with uh, 25 individuals on the ground who are nannies, housekeepers, and caregivers, or domestic workers, as we say, and domestic employers, and looking at the challenges. And over and over, over the past decade, uh, I can't tell you how many times I've heard about the housing precarity that both domestic workers and caregivers, as well as uh, older and disabled adults, have faced. Mm. You know, the kinds of work that we are producing include policy toolkits, audio novellas, artworks that have been seen in museums, uh, a film series, and so forth. And um, when I started looking and kind of thinking about reflecting on this body of work, I thought to myself, well, what would be the next thing? And I was really thinking about how architecture and the built environment and the urban environment could reflect and help shift how we value care and help inspire um, care, which is an essential and central part of everybody's life. Um, and so I turned to Rafi. Um, we were both uh, teaching at MIT at the time. And we started thinking about designs and we turned to a real estate developer whose mother was a domestic worker. He invited us to build this project in, in Baltimore and in Maryland, the United States, where um, in a historically under-resourced neighborhood. Care House is built on this idea of centering and anchoring caregivers, which is unlike a lot of the care facilities that we see today that are really um, oriented around the, quote, care consumer and um, presupposes a, a sort of transactionality about how we think about care. But we're, we're anchoring caregivers because if you don't have the caregivers, you, have, you, don't have, you don't have care. So we're really designing and building this architectural project with that in mind. So how do we 
involve older and disabled adults into uh, the urban fabric and the you know the neighborhood, immediate neighborhood. Older and disabled adults have a fundamental, important role to play in the building of democracy. And how do we build for that? Um, and here we're kind of pushing back against this austerity aesthetics that we see in a lot of senior housing today. So make 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 that concrete for me. I mean, what, what does it look like? So Care House is designed for 17 older and disabled adults and four caregivers and their children. So we're in the permitting phases now. We hope to um, uh, open at the end of 2024. And when you walk through, it is designed to meet the needs of older and disabled adults, which also means for us, we interpret that as enable them to be as autonomous as they can for as long as they can. So not autonomous in terms of being isolated, but autonomous in terms of being able to move around their surroundings and be active participants. So, for example, that means designing for people with low vision, which is important to me as someone who has early glaucoma and I have uh, pretty bad vision, I should say. And it's my number one fear is not being able to move around. And every floor has a different theme in which the common spaces, uh, so I should say everyone has their own individual uh, units, mm -hmm. and then there's more space allocated for people to come together, the older as well as the children of caregivers, to share pastimes. So that might be homework help, that might be gardening, that might be art activities and so forth. So it's an intergenerational space for programming. You know, we're using colors and design and uh specific imagery and murals to be specific and honor the individuals who've helped make Carehouse possible, i.e. the caregivers who've been involved in the co-design process, and honor that history and legacy. So we're not, you know, we're pushing back against this idea of these sanitary, uh, institutional, hyper-institutional uh, facilities. Ours is um, homey, lived in, um, and inspired by art and design. <laughs> and I guess, the, I mean, the breakthrough thought for the, the, the disciplines of, of, of design and architecture is to embrace that, that notion of co-design and that uh, to remove the, the architectural ego from the process is, is part of your proposition. You know, we believe that everyone brings their own expertise. For example... Um, with all humility, I would never espouse, I, I would never myself attempt to do the role of what the structural engineer is doing on this job. <laughs> Fair enough. Too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I would never assume. Some things are expert. I, yes, I, we believe in expertise and we believe in that there are multiple kinds of expertise that come together to make a project amazing and excellent and well-designed. We believe that there's, you know, the co-design process, I think it's often confused for being this mishmash and um, bringing together and everybody's involved in soup to nuts from every single um, decision-making process and every single detail. But honestly, that's not how everyone wants to participate. You know, the caregivers feel honored and they're directly contributing to the design of this building, but they don't want to be involved in thinking about the HVAC system. <laughs> they, they probably have enough to do apart they from do. anything else. I mean, <laughs> an interesting aspect of, and, and you, you've written about this, is 
that this new praxis, if I can call it that, is 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 a feminised one. Um, could you explain that thinking to us? Yes, well, I mean, it's for so long, and even still today, of course, there's a disparity of women at the decision table. This project is really led, it's not entirely led, well, it is led by the voices of women, but there are also many allies involved whom I consider integral. You know, Rafi Seagal has done, you know, the work that he has done over the years is you know, I respect his work so much because he's always thinking about the principles of democracy, which directly um, inform his practice as an architect, um, and which I think are quite inspiring. You know, Ernst Valerie is really inspired by the work of his um, his mother, and that is, you know, is is what uh, drives his involvement in this project. But of course, as a Haitian American immigrant, is you know, he's responding to the immediate needs around him. The, the chips are against you if you're an immigrant Black woman in Baltimore. So I would say that this, um, the project of Care House and really the Design and Solidarity book altogether are looking at the work of women as well as historically underrepresented communities and what that means for us to represent those values in our urban, civic, and architectural environment. Well, Marissa, congratulations on the book and important ideas that are at a critical moment. You know that, 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 as you said before, mutuality needs to step up to bridge various various cultural and societal failings right now, and it's it's a time of some urgency. So, thank you for setting it all down. Thank you for having me on the show, and also for your wonderful and inspiring journalism as well. Marissa Jarn, uh, artist, designer, author and educator, and the book of which we speak is Design and Solidarity, uh, co-authored with architect Rafi Seagull, and that's out through Columbia University Press. Getting in touch with ABCRN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.